0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. As was just read a little while ago, we're going to be looking at Psalm 38, um, almost verse by verse. So if you have a Bible or if you have a phone, uh, you can turn there. I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, Cold Case before, probably many, many of you have. Uh, A cold case is a case that, you know, some crime that has happened, and there's very little kind of clues as to how to solve it, there's no suspects, it's gone cold. And uh, in different countries, it takes a different amount of time, some places it's a year, maybe other places it's a few years, but then it kind of goes into the files, and it's called a cold case, and it just sits there until you know, something's going to happen. And uh, there was a case in the UK that had been cold for 70 years. So it was the case of a prostitute who had been murdered after World War II. And so in World War II, there was all kinds of different people floating around Europe, and uh, someone had tried to use her services, and in the payment, something, the client was not happy and the the person ended up shooting this prostitute and killing her and there was actually police really nearby and so a chase ensued it made it into the papers and as they got to the subway the tube the murderer was lost in the crowd so the case went cold no no leads. No, you know, no knowledge of what decade after decade after decade. Finally, in 2015, in our province, actually, in Ontario, a old man who was 89 years old and was two years into skin cancer uh, finally got in touch with the authorities and said, uh, that case 70 years ago Of the murdered prostitute was me. And so he sat in his bed in an old folks home here in Ontario uh, nearing the end of his life and there were um, police officers from Ontario and police officers from the UK who were interviewing him. And they were trying to piece together like, is this for real? Is, Is this guy telling the truth? And so they actually had uh, old pictures of Margaret Cook, the prostitute, and they showed, like, kind of did, like, a line, you know, showed a bunch of different pictures, and he pointed her out right away, and they kind of, like, dug in, like, why are you doing this? 70 years on, you know, what what's the point of this? And the reporter who took the story down said that in his own words, he said he wanted to clear his conscience for 70 years. This murder had been hanging over him for 70 years. Welcome to Psalm 38, the last psalm that we're doing this summer. And maybe it's fitting that we end on a lament psalm, because there's been so many lament psalms over the last two summers as we've been looking at these psalms. And in Psalm 38, uh, David is telling his own story. He is, in some ways, clearing his own conscience. He is going to give to us a, a way forward when it comes to sin entering our very own lives. And so in this lament, it's going to cause us to be able to put into practice uh, some of the very things that David put into practice when sin enters our lives. And it will enter every single one of our lives. Sin is going to enter. And so David is saying now with Psalm 38, here's what you can put into practice. And he begins with this, maybe the one that is the most counterintuitive to us, but he says, receive the gift of discipline. Receive the gift of discipline. Listen to verses 1 through 3 again. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of... Of my sin, I don't know if you've felt before the weight of sin or the consequences of sin in your life. Maybe you have a memory of something that happened. I was thinking this week um, of a memory that is going way back. So the details of this story, I can't vouch for all of them, okay? But they're mostly true. Because they happened to me when I was in like grade one or two. I was going to Kleefeld Public School. Probably nobody knows where Kleefeld is. It's in Manitoba. Tiny little school out in the country. And it was wintertime, because most of the time in Manitoba it's winter. Okay, it was wintertime. And there was a playground that we could all play in. But everybody knew the students are not supposed to go around to the back of the school into this little cove. Nobody's supposed to go back there, play in the playgrounds. And somehow... I was uh, with a couple of other students in my grade, grade one or two, and we went back there. And we started doing stuff back there, uh, stuff that we weren't supposed to do. And we came back around and somehow the teachers found out that we had gone in no man's land where we weren't supposed to be going. And I don't know if this ever happened to you. You were probably all good students, but I had hanging over my head then the potential of going to the principal's office. Okay, the principal's office before. Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, this is shocking. Okay, this is my confession then today. This was the one and only time that I was actually sent to the principal's office. So I can still remember sitting in my seat in the classroom, beads of sweat forming on my forehead. Then the announcement, or I don't know how it came through, a telephone or something, and the three of us had to truck over to the principal's office. And we didn't know what could happen in that office. This was the 80s, man. Anything could happen in that office, okay? But I was marched in there with fear, you know. And and here's the point. Even at that age, grade one, grade two, whatever it was, I could feel the dread and i could feel the consequences of wrong choices even on the playground and sin is like that sin comes into our lives through choices that we make and sometimes the consequences are really steep Sometimes they're small. You know, they're, they are small. At other times, they are really steep. This is most likely, you can see in, in your Bible, probably it says at the top, it's a psalm of David, that's what mine says, for the memorial offering. Essentially, what the Hebrew word there is saying, it's, it's a psalm of David for remembrance. So David is writing this down for the people to remember, and he's using his own life, his own name as a narrative for remembrance. So David, his story is recorded of his sin with Bathsheba and all the consequences that came from that. The consequences for his family and for his kingdom, all kinds, it's recorded there for us to read. And now he's saying, remember this. Remember this even in your sin, that God is still doing something. Don't forget it, don't just shove it in a closet. Remember that God is doing something in the midst of this. So for us as Christians, a a theological idea that we uh, talk about is this idea of sanctification. And I actually put, you don't get a chart too often, but I, I put a chart up here for you to kind of see what sanctification is. Sanctification is this process of Christians becoming more and more into the image of Christ. So you can see here, Before we are believers, we are slaves to sin. We are in this world only connected to our natures. We are made new. And then God is is wanting in our lives, not for us to be these perfect people that have all of our lives together, but people who are becoming more and more like Jesus. And so you can see there is ups and downs, and this chart is maybe like a little too perfect, you know, it's just like straight kind of up and down like that. There might be seasons of massive valleys, and then seasons of, you know, exponential growth where we're experiencing his, his, the day. And then at the end, you can see the ultimate progression in our growth. The day that you will grow the most is the day that you die, because then you will be in Christ's presence, and it says that you will be like him Fully like him. But in the meantime, as we are here, you see that little blue circle? That is the place where sanctification happens. When we choose sin, when we choose idols, when we choose things other than God, we're actually going in the opposite direction than what God wants for us. And so God in those moments has given different gifts to us. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, who speaks to us. But another gift that God gives to us is actually discipline. God disciplines us. So, a text that it's a little bit long, I'm gonna gonna read it here, but a text that helps frame this for us and helps us understand it better because most of us don't like the idea of discipline, and especially when it comes to ourselves. So Hebrews actually helps us understand it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. It says this, And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Meaning a a relational, a family kind of exhortation. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives, for it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons." But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the writer of Hebrews here says, listen, discipline is good. Discipline is actually a sign that God loves you. And the writer here says, listen, here is how we know this actually, is because we have experienced discipline ourselves. So to any of the parents in here And anyone who was a child, okay, so that's everybody in case you're wondering, um, if you're a parent, you are called actually by God to discipline your children. That's part of your calling. That's part of the the work. It is to be a parent. And the writer here of Hebrews says, listen, it is self-evident. We can see this in people around us when they have been disciplined or not disciplined. And he says the product then is good. But he also says when you're in the midst of it. When you're in the midst of being disciplined. There's no joy in it. You're not enjoying it. It's not fun. But he says the fruit actually bears itself out over time. So parents. Many of us have experienced uh, good experiences with discipline. But there may be also some in here who have really terrible or bad experiences with discipline. There may be some in here who think discipline equals spanking and spanking equals abuse. And so we're just like, man, we just throw this idea of discipline out the door. It's all terrible. But what the scriptures show us is that discipline is not always like this terrible thing that happens to us that is like punishment, okay? That's what we tend to think of discipline. Discipline here, actually, and in the scriptures, comes in many different ways. And now listen, I'm just gonna point out three here for us, okay? Three ways that that discipline actually forms us as people, and it's, it's really important for us to understand this, even on a human level, so that we can understand what is God doing when discipline comes into my life? So discipline, I've just written down three ways where discipline is actually doing its work. One is correction, one is prevention, and one is education, okay? Correction, the first one. Maybe the one that we like the least, where we've done some sort of wrong, and now correction comes into our lives. So I don't know what your context was. Maybe you got grounded as a child. Maybe some things were restricted from you. I won't describe all the things that I experienced, okay? The different ways, again, I grew up in the 80s, okay? I'm not sure who all grew up in the 80s, but times were different. But even in our story here, for David's own life, when he chooses his own way, the correction that he experiences is super painful for him. It's really painful. And there's some correction that comes into our lives Often it comes in the form of the consequences that we have to live through where the correction seems really painful. But there's also prevention. There are times where God in his godly wisdom gives us prevention, where he brings something into our lives to guide us along. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. The apostle Paul has this magnificent ministry. He's super effective. He's he's extremely gifted and God says, "I'm giving you, Paul, so that you, I'm giving you something that is going to always be with you so that you just to prevent you from growing too proud because of all that you have in terms of natural gifting and all that you have in terms of a mission from God." So God says, "I'm doing some preventative discipline here, Paul. So that you can stay on the right path and stay on mission. And for some of us, that is actually what God gives to us. Some sort of preventative thing. Maybe something we were born into. Maybe something that you know, we can't take out of our lives. But it's, it's there. And God uses it, actually, to discipline us. And then lastly is education. So it's not always like, I sin here and then instantly I'm going to get correction There are times where God brings into our life a form of discipline, which is a teaching. And in this case, I think of the person of Job. We think of his story. Someone who it says was upright and righteous, and yet God says, Okay, Job, your relationship with me has another level that it can actually go to. And the whole book of Job is describing this. It's it's a painful story. But it is not as a result of Job massively sinning in his life. It's God coming in and disciplining him for his own good, to, to teach him some new things. Now here's the challenge. In the Hebrews text, it talks about you know our earthly fathers. But those of us who are parents know that we make so many mistakes. Those of us who are parents know that we get this wrong so much of the time. But here's what we can take comfort in people. God is a perfect father. A perfect father. None of us have experienced a parent like this. God is the perfect parent. And so when God disciplines us for correction, for prevention, for education, or any other category that I didn't talk about, here's what we can trust in. He is good and perfect always. So when he brings things into our lives, though we may not understand it, we might not be able to like understand, what, God, what are you doing in this instance? It is in those very moments that we trust in the, the total love of God. And we allow it to just wrap our arms fully around what he has given to us, even in the difficulty of it. Perfect, loving Father. So receive the gift of discipline, as difficult as that may be. The second is this. David says, practice confession. So the results of David's discipline are put in uh, very graphic words here, and it's hard to know if this is like really happening to David, or if he's just kind of describing his internal feelings. But listen to verse four. For my iniquities have gone over ink and fester. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds, they stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day long I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Wow, David sounds like he is in a desperate situation. He is feeling the weight of his sin, and he is expressing it in words that are super graphic. How do you respond when you sin? What is your life like when sin comes into your life? There's a lot of different ways that we can respond to sin in our lives. We can be like Adam and Eve, and we can hide. And maybe you did this when you were a kid, or maybe you've seen your kids do this before. They do something wrong. That you, they're not supposed to do this. You've set some boundaries in place. They do it. They cross it. And then you're like, where are you, Johnny? You know, they're like like—they're hidden. They're hiding. And we still do this as adults. We just hide. We, You know, we just move on. Or maybe... If you've been in church long enough, if you've been around uh, Christians long enough, maybe you've learned this one, you just are like, I'm gonna muster it up and try better. You know, I failed here, I'm never gonna do that again. And you move forward with like total confidence that I can just be a better person. I know God was not happy with me there, so now he's gonna be really happy with me if I follow this route. That's the, that's the religious route, just like muster it, white knuckle it, I'm going to get better, get better, get better. Or maybe, like we see in the New Testament a few times, you're even going to like celebrate the sin in your life. This is what the Corinthians were doing. They were celebrating what was going on in their midst, and Paul says, are you guys for real? Like this kind of sin, Paul says, not even the pagans celebrate this kind of sin, but now this sin is in your midst. And you're, like, lifting it up as a good thing. And this is also a temptation for us to just kind of live in it and not face it. But what does David encourage us to do? Remember, in his remembrance of his own life, David says, Confess, O Lord. Look at verse 9 and verse 18. Verse 9 says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But it's really hard to be totally honest. It's really hard to be some even with someone that you are in most closest, intimate relationship with. For me, the the person that I'm the closest with is my wife Liz. We've been married now for 26 years. The majority of my life has been spent with her, for good and for bad. There have been times, right, we are locked in. And over the years, there have been times where I have wronged her, where I've had to come and confess to her sin that I've done, where I have broken, and she's had to, in turn, forgive me in that process. And here's what I've learned in in doing that. One is that I probably should do it more often. But the other is this, that anytime I do that confession process, it's really hard. Really hard. Even with the person that's the closest to me on the planet. So now here David is saying, confess your sins to God. And here's the miracle of it. God who knows us inside and out, God who knows everything about us. Even before we say it, he sticks with us. He stays near us. And he hears us. So David says, practice your confession. Because confession is the entry point into forgiveness, and it's the entry point into God beginning to work in your life. In Mark's gospel, it starts in chapter 1 with the entrance of john the baptist who is going to announce that the messiah is coming that jesus is coming and here's what it says in mark chapter 1 verse 4 john appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins and all the country of judea and all jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river jordan confessing their sins So here in Mark 1, John comes onto the scene, and he is the the beginning. He is the forerunner for Jesus, who would be the Messiah. And now he says, listen, do you want the Messiah to come? Do you want God to work in your life? It begins with confession. It begins with entering into forgiveness. And in that moment where confession comes into our lives, when we practice it before God, and even as James says in James 5.16, when we practice it with each other, it's in those very moments, in that very moment, that God comes in and begins to work. The work of the Messiah begins when confession and forgiveness enters into our own hearts. So, we receive the gift of discipline and we Practice confession. And finally, we remember that God saves. Psalm 38, verse 15 says this, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. And verse 21 says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste, in you know, O oh Lord, my salvation. David here at the end in in a in a word of hope for us. You know we're in the lament. You know we're talking about sin, we're talking about confession, all these things that we all probably struggle with. None of us is like I'm first to the line to do that. But now David at the end here turns and says, "There's some really good news here." And the good news is that God is our salvation. God has actually done something. Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan theologian who wrote extensively just about theology, he wrote 12 volumes on theology. And each of those volumes is like over 500 pages, tiny font, you know, it's like lots of words Volume 2 is exclusively about Ephesians chapter 2. The whole volume, 500 pages, is about that. And in that volume, he slows down for I don't know how many pages on this one single verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Thomas Goodwin says, okay, This verse, the truth that it is saying, we've got to park here. Because the verses leading up to that, verses 1 through 3, it talks about how we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are not alive to God. We are born in them and we live in them. And the verses after talk about all that we enjoy because of who Christ is, all the gifts that we have. But verse 4 says, God, but God He was rich in mercy and love towards us. Even in our sin, God is rich in mercy and great in love. And David here in Psalm 38 is is looking forward. His hope is in this Messiah who's coming. And he says, salvation is coming. God is going to work this out in the moment. Going to the temples, doing the sacrifices, practicing all the law, looking forward, there's going to be a Messiah that's coming. And for us as believers, 2,000 years later, now we look back at Jesus, and we are called here in this psalm to marvel at what Jesus has done for us, that his mercy is so rich, and his grace and love just is lavished on us. So that even with all the sin that we bring into this world, with all the brokenness that we experience and that we bring into the world, God is gracious and he loves us. His salvation is deep. Tim Keller says this, To be loved but not known is superficial. And to be known but not loved is our nightmare. Only Jesus knows us to the bottom and loves us to the sky. He knows everything, because, and he still went to the cross, because his mercy is deep, his love is wide. So David says, "God is our salvation," but he doesn't just say it in a generic way. He says, "God is my salvation." You see that the last, the last verse: "Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation." He's made this personal. This isn't just an idea. It's not just a theological concept that's out there that, you know, the nation would talk about. David says, this is my God. This is my salvation. He has made it personal. And there's there's many of us who have sat in church year after year after year, and, and the message has been there The mercy has been preached, the grace has been preached, but we have never made it our salvation. We've never been able to say, This is my salvation. And here David is saying, This salvation is so great, it is so glorious, and it's my salvation. I've put my trust in it. For many of us, we've experienced the opportunity of going on a trip somewhere. Maybe you've gone to somewhere exotic where you got the books, right, the Lonely Planet books, and you're looking at the sites that you're going to see. You've mapped it out, and you're, you know, all the restaurants that you want to do, and you've got your ticket. Maybe you've got your passport. Then you go to the airport. What do you got to do, though, to, like, get there to enjoy all the fullness of what you've been looking into? You could stand at the gate there, I'm going to go. I'm going to enjoy Hawaii. It's going to be great. That beach is going to be wonderful. But unless you get on that plane, you're not going there. You're not experiencing it. Now listen, where the story kind of breaks down is that like, planes are pretty trustworthy, but we know that it's not 100% trustworthy, okay? But Jesus is the only one who came Took on flesh, became a person who died, was actually put into the grave, but didn't stay there. He rose from the dead. And people saw him and experienced him, put their trust in him, they touched him, they held him. He's the only one who we can say was the guarantee of it. So this morning, with David's words of lament and remembrance, I just want to challenge us all again to put our trust in our salvation, which is Jesus Christ, and to glory in our Lord. This week, I was able to, uh, one of the days over lunch, I was able to practice uh, midday prayer. I don't know if you've seen it on our website. We've got some resources on prayer. And uh, so actually, I just went on there, and I looked, and I was like, oh, there's a midday prayer. So it talks about having a few moments of silence, and then uh, reading some scripture to to reflect on and to pray back to God. And so I was struck by the truth of God's goodness to us in Psalm 103, and I just want to close our message by listening to these words. Would you bow your head and close as we reflect on the glory of God and all that he's done for us? Psalm 103 The Lord works righteousness and justice for to the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Bless the Lord. Amen.